On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Alexander Hampton and Dr. John Peter Kenny about Christian Platonism. So we cover topics like what is Platonism? What is Christian Platonism? How much of an impact did Platonism have on Christianity? And what areas of Christian theology are most shaped by Platonism and which are most antithetical to it, if there are any at all? Those sorts of questions are all throughout this episode. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com, or chat more about it with us in the London Lyceum Society. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, what do you think this one's going to get you thinking? I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we here at the London Lyceum are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking because we think the church needs more serious thinking. But we do it in a way that we hope to create an intellectual culture or an intellectual climate of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today I am so excited to introduce you all uh, to two new friends who have uh, published this really, really interesting work on titled Christian Platonism and History. It's edited by Alexander Hampton, who we have, and John Peter Kenny, who we have as well. And this book, I think, is really fascinating. It's got a lot of, I mean, just, you've got pretty much all sorts of high-powered scholars in here. So, I, I've been reading it myself. I'm almost done, and I've really benefited from it, and I think there's a lot of really unique, interesting contributions in it. So I'm looking forward to just talking a little bit o- about the overall scope and what you guys, why you guys got interested in this and uh, things along those uh, lines. So before we do that, though, why don't uh, I have both of you introduce yourselves a little bit uh, for the listeners who may not be familiar with you. So Dr. Hampton, I'll let you start, and then Dr. Kenny can go after that. But just give me a little bit of background, and then what? why is it that you got interested in Christian Platonism of all things? Yeah, uh, well, thanks, uh, first off, uh, Jordan and Brandon, for having us. Um, and uh, we really appreciate the interest uh, in, in the book. Um, so, yes, I'm, uh, my name is Alex Hampton. I'm a professor at uh, the University of Toronto in the Department for the Study of Religion. Um, and I specialize in really three areas, poetics, ecology, and philosophy, um, all in the Christian tradition. And of course, what connects each one of those is this kind of engagement I have with a metaphysical tradition of um, Christian Platonism. Um, and uh, I see it as providing a, a way to, to conceptualize um, how, um, how we understand nature, how we understand aesthetics and how we use um, philosophy to uh, both understand the history of Christianity and understand the way Christianity has expressed itself uh, throughout its history. Well, hi, everybody. Thanks so much for uh, having us uh, on today. Um, I I got into this uh, business of Christian Platonism because I originally started out in, in the study of Greek philosophy. So I'm going back quite a ways here. Uh, back to the 70s. And um, I also was very interested in philosophy of religion and in metaphysics. Um, I started out uh, studying ancient philosophy and, and, uh, and I, I became exceptionally intrigued by the emergence of two things, uh, monotheism, philosophical monotheism in late antiquity. Uh, and also, of course, specifically 
the development of Jewish and Christian philosophy emerging out of the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition, what's new, what's different, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and in some respects, I have to admit, I was frustrated by, in many ways, the um, thinness of some of the philosophy of religion that I was reading in that period, and also impressed by the extraordinary depth of those great founders of the Jewish and Christian philosophical tradition when I read them. And so I got absolutely absorbed in trying to understand Philo, Justin, Clement, Origen, Augustine, and on the other side, of course, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, and trying to understand that whole incredibly rich milieu out of which what we think of as Western monotheism emerged. I've also been interested in the continuing trajectory, of course, of this, and um, especially interested in comparative Jewish, Christian, and Islamic monotheism. So that's kind of how I got into this. And I, uh, I did my doctorate at Brown in religious studies, where they were doing a lot of this comparative work. Um, and I taught out on the West Coast for many years, Reed College. Uh, and uh, then I taught at St. Michael's College, where I was also dean up in Vermont, and now I'm retired. So I'm speaking to you from the rocky coast of Maine, Cape Elizabeth. All right. Well, thank you both for right. giving us some of your time today. Um, if you don't mind, I guess we'll start with just uh, something very basic, a definition of Platonism. So we have a wide range, I think, of, of folks who listen to our, our show. Some folks are um, pastors, some are PhDs, some just are, are lay people in the church. So um, a lot of this is going to be redundant for, for some folks, but but for those who don't know, maybe just give us, a, either one of you guys, um, a definition of, of Platonism. Um, well, I'd say something, um, I think what the first thing I'd say is, um, the distinction between the philosophy of Plato and Platonism. So, um, we can think about the, the, the character of Socrates who expresses Plato's philosophy. We can think about the, the writings of Plato, but then of course there's the, you know, 2000 year plus history that, that follows out of that. And so what, what is it that holds all of that, um, uh, trajectory or that tradition uh, together. Uh, and in many ways, I, I think it's uh, what is key to it, whether you're talking about um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge or whether you're talking about Aquinas or Augustine or um, uh, Philo or Plotinus, I think one of the key themes is this, um, is this question of how does one conceptualize the relationship between um, God and creation, or between the finite and the infinite, between the universal and a particular, uh, the eternal and the temporal. And I think that the project of um, understanding the relationship between imminence and transcendence is probably one of the key um, elements that holds that tradition uh, together. And I think that's when we talk about Platonism, in many ways, we're talking about what we might also call philosophical realism, uh, which is the belief that, or the position that our ideals are real, uh, that they're extramental, um, and that they're intelligible, um, so that they exist outside of ourselves, um, and they exist um, in an intelligible that is a non-physical realm. And once we get into the Jewish and Christian tradition, that's something that exists in the mind of God as divine ideas. 
if we go back to Plato, that's something that exists in the uh, beyond being, um, which are the eternal forms that uh, God looks to uh, through the demiurge to create. So um, it's um, it's best to think of it as a, as a kind of almost a philosophical orientation in a way, as opposed to um, a kind of essentialist uh, tradition, which needs to hold these, you know, three or five tenets or something like that. Um, John, did you want to speak to that as well? Oh, sure. Uh, no, I think that's an excellent point that you just made uh, here. And as we think about Platonism, I think it's a it's a mistake to um, think about it too much in contemporary terms, because when we go back to ancient Platonism, um, it, it was a philosophy in the ancient sense of the term. That is, it was much broader than what we think of as philosophy today, right? So it was not just the problem-solving conceptual um, a form of discourse. It was a totalizing approach to life. Think of Socrates, right? So Platonists are trying to imitate Socrates, and they're trying to, to live a very austere way of life, which is consistent in general with their understanding that there is a transcendental level of reality uh, to which the inner self in one form or another is drawn or connected. Um, and so as we look back, we can see that the ancient Platonists were um, developing both a set of flexible concepts and at the same time working with an ethic all designed to seek out and find wisdom. Right? That was the whole point of it. And they stood apart from the society around them as this began, which is one of the reasons, of course, why Christians were described so often as philosophers in antiquity. I mean, you can see that almost in, in Acts, uh, Acts 17 or so when, when, when Paul shows up at the Areopagus, right? And, uh, you know, they look at him and they think, oh, guy looks like a philosopher. You know, what? Let's, let's give him a hearing, right? And Acts says, well, you know, they were Stoics and Epicureans and there are all these philosophers sitting around and they want, they want to hear from Christians. So one of the interesting things is that from the very beginning, in that sense, Christian was, Christians were philosophers. Right. So uh, Platonists had their own particular uh, understanding. And that's, I think, one of the things that we want to uh, try to get at here today, because their thinking was quite revolutionary. And that's what drew the Christians towards them. And uh, it all has to do with what Alex just articulated, that notion of some type of transcendental level of reality, which was in some way also imminent, right? And that's that's what's drawn so many thinkers over and over again to this tradition uh, across the board, right? Jewish, Christian, Islamic thinkers, but we can stay in our own lane here with the Christian tradition today. Yeah, so as I'm thinking about defining Platonism, the very first chapter, on the perennial value of Platonism is by Lloyd Gerson. And I know right. I've read some other stuff from him where the way he defines Platonism seems to capture quite a big net. Uh, so I think he's argued that what Aristotle counts as a Platonist, yes. et cetera. <laughs> is right. that a fair way to define Platonism? Is that along the lines of how you would think about it? Or would do you want to massage that nuance that a little bit? What do you think, Alex? Well, uh, I, I think um, if we if we go back to defining Platonism as something which is 
It's a form of philosophical realism that is a transcendent realism. Then, you know, I think absolutely um, Aristotle and the Aristotelian tradition uh, fits in that. And, you know, with going back to what John was saying, I mean, we have a very narrow definition of what we call philosophy uh, today, but, you know, philosophy um, in the in antiquity is, you know, as, as has been said, a kind of way of life. It's, it's a psychology. It's a, it's a spirituality. Uh, it's even a, a poetics uh, for understanding um, uh, the self and the self's relationship uh, to creation. And, and as soon as we begin to talk about the kind of uh, metaphysical um, component of this, which is this realist component, we, we see immediately uh, that this uh, saturation of um, all of imminent reality uh, with transcendence um, has immediately a, a kind of ethical component too, because it calls forth an ethical response from the individual in terms of um, what their relationship with the uh, with the outside world is. And so, um, uh, you know, it is it is quite broad. And we might say, well, are we making the term so big that it it becomes perhaps not so so useful in the end. Um, <clears throat> but I would say that um, what we really tried to do with this text is, is really track a, a, a broad trajectory of, of thought. And, and that thought, <clears throat> as, as we've said, focuses around this, uh, this issue of um, uh, understanding um, uh, all of uh, imminent reality as, as something which has a kind of... Um, transcendent um, uh, undergirding or transcendent reality underneath it. And um, I think that's really what is at the, at the core of that, um, of that term when we throw around Platonism. And in some ways, I, I, in my own writing, tend to use the term um, ontological realism more than I use Platonism because Platonism Plato or Platonism calls to forth, you know, calls calls to one's mind the image of of Plato and the and the, yeah. and the dialogues and and uh, I think we want to talk about something which is which is much broader and so um, uh, you know the the irony of the term Christian Platonism is you've got two almost undefinably broad uh, concepts in some ways um, but uh, hopefully we'll get to um, get to uh, the core of that uh, today in our discussion. Well, if I could. Um pick up for a moment uh, on that. Um, I think it's very fair to have a pretty broad understanding of Platonism. Um, if we want to really capture what, why the Christians are interested in it in, in antiquity, as I've just articulated, um, you know, if you're in the time of, of, uh, of origin or, or, or Augustine later on, uh, they're pagan Platonists around and that, you know, they're their own school. They're not Christians. Right. So in that sense, you know, not, none of these people would have described themselves as Christian Platonists. But the breadth of Platonism um, and the power of Platonism is such that it really transformed the um, spiritual imagination of antiquity. And this is a critical moment in the development of Western thought as we shift this great peripety over to monotheism. Right, over these centuries. And Platonism and the associated Aristotelian tradition are absolutely central to that shift because they are driving the idea that Alex has already been 
articulating of a particular deep understanding of transcendence. They are articulating that there is another level of reality beyond the material and the physical, which was systemic in the ancient world. Right? That's how everyone thought about the divine. That's the way the gods were. They came and went in space. You can access them in time. That changes fundamentally as we come into the Christian era. And one of the huge drivers of that is this Platonic tradition in the generalized sense of it, as it sort of seeps into the general thinking of the ancient world, and in particular is accessed then by the leading intellectuals in the Jewish and Christian tradition. So as we think about it, what the Platonists are saying is there's a level of reality outside of space and time, that it is a higher level of reality, that this world is dependent for its existence on that world, participating in it. We're ontological clients of that higher level of reality. And that higher level of reality cannot be known in the way that we know physical or material levels of reality, but only through some kind of deeper element within the soul, which is our intellect or our news or whatever you want to describe it as. So if you think about that, that, that puts a whole other layer onto your understanding of reality. You've built out a whole new ontology, which then fundamentally changed the way at least the mainstream of philosophical reflection began to think about God. So one of the drivers of monotheism is this idea that there is a deeper level of reality. And the way the Greeks got to their monotheism, as opposed to the Hebraic tradition with its focus on exclusivity, is this idea of a deeper, ultimate, inclusive power, the one, the good, so deep that it's beyond the intelligibles at a higher level even than the forms or whatever one wants to describe the intelligibles as. So the good out of which everything comes is an extraordinarily deep power. And when we get to Plotinus, it's an infinite power. So it's an infinite force that is now, because of its very separation from space and time, absolutely imminent, ontologically, within all reality. Now that's an unbelievably powerful idea that just took hold in antiquity. And you can see it, the Platonists beginning around uh, 90 BC really begin what we call middle Platonism, really begin to work on this type of thinking. And by the time we get a little bit further down range into the second century, and especially when we get to Plotinus, all of these ideas have gelled. So, so that pagan trajectory of thinking, that Platonic trajectory of thinking becomes the most powerful, most prestigious, most persuasive way to think about the divine. And that clicks clearly with major thinkers like Philo and Origen. And of course, and this is something else we have to think about, that whole uh, sort of greatest generation or so of Nicenes, right, who in the fourth century are absolutely all buying into what I've just articulated. Right? And this is what they bring to the table as they read the scriptures. And if you think about Ambrose, Augustine, 
right? And then the Cappadocians, right? All of those people, Athanasius, they're all using this way of thinking. And this is how we end up talking about Mia Usia, Tres Supastases, you know, the Homo Usian, all of those Nicene concepts are coming out of this mode of reflection. And this is how they began to be able to grab hold of the earlier scriptural record and, as it were, jump Christianity up in its sophistication to be able to stand and articulate itself in a context where high-level philosophical thinkers on the pagan side had already assimilated what I, the type of thinking that I've been uh, talking about. So what areas then, when it comes to, say, this group of Christian Platonists or Christian Platonism as a term, what areas of Christian theology are most being shaped by Platonism? Is it the stuff that you just mentioned, or are, is it also shaping other aspects of it? And is it more Platonist than it is Christian, or is it more Christian than it is Platonist? Um, I think one of the places to begin with that would probably be the divine ideas tradition. Um, one of the places that I think is kind of very exciting, and I love showing undergraduates this sort of moment in history, is when um, Philo um, and his interpretation of uh, Genesis turns to the to the divine ideas. Um, uh, and uh, what we essentially have there is... Um, uh, uh, Philo um, interprets uh, the creation story um, by employing um, ideas from from Plato's Timaeus. In the Timaeus, of course, it's the um, it's the, uh, the the demiurge that that, that creates um, and uh, looks to the ideal forms to to shape a pre existent matter. Uh, well, what um, what happens, of course, in 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 Philo, is that the um, the ideas, the forms, are, are moved, of course, and relocated in the mind of God, uh, such that um, creation comes to be the unfolding of the divine mind. So when you look at creation, you see manifestation uh, of the divine mind. And that sort of um, is an exciting moment of, 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 of coming together. And you can see how, uh, in this way, creation becomes... Uh, um, a kind of participatory um, place. Uh, the term <clears throat> adopted out of, of Plato is, is methexis. So all of all of reality participates um, in the divine mind. What makes something what it is is its participation in a divine idea, and uh, that leads to a kind of um, uh, a sacramental view of reality and understanding of of nature as a as an unfolding of a. Uh, not only a divine plan, but um, of the divine mind, of, of divine ideas, <clears throat> and uh, really leads to the na uh, the tradition of, of uh, natural uh, theology. Um, and at the same time, the immediate historical uh, context, of course, is that um, <clears throat> for um, Christianity, which picks up um, deeply upon um, Philo's thought, is... Uh, in, in the second century, we have um, uh, a very uh, highly Hellenized um, Jewish population. And so uh, <clears throat> to the extent that um, they're interpreting their own scriptures through Greek philosophy. And this is the same world that um, early Christianity itself is developing in. So it, in many ways, the, the, the Hellenistic um, air that um, they're all breathing is... Um, 
is the way there that uh, both uh, second century Judaism is re-articulating itself, but also the way that Christianity comes to articulate itself as it, it forms and constitutes itself in, in this early period. And, and it's kind of a, a really exciting moment in history. And then you see, of course, this, this notion of, of the divine ideas um, picked up in, in origin and then in, in Augustine's interpretation of, of Genesis. And, and you can see it, it carry through. And so uh, this idea of, of looking upon creation and, and seeing uh, the divine mind, I think, becomes a very, um, a very key component. And also the kind of sacramental understanding of, of creation itself that, that results from it. Um, and enfolded into that, of course, is um, an idea of, um, of divine mimesis as well. Um, but um, uh, John, you probably wanted to speak further to that as well. Sure. Um, yeah, let me pick up on that for um, for a moment or two. Um, one of the things that I think we have to do for a moment is sort of put ourselves into that pagan platonic world and think about salvation. How, how do you achieve salvation? You, you now know that you're in a world uh, that has a higher level of reality, much greater and more beautiful than the level you're in. Um, and your soul aspires somehow to deepen that participation that Alex has just been talking about in that higher level of reality. How do you do that? Well, philosophy seems to have been, at least for a very long time, the actual practice of it, as I've described it earlier, um, that way towards salvation. Question is, uh, however, uh, is it really the case that your soul has that power within it, latent within it, to be able to connect up to those other levels? Now, within Platonism, uh, there's a longstanding uh, element uh, which emphasizes reincarnation, right? That maybe your soul can't make it this time around, but maybe next time. And of course, Platonists debated extensively about what portion of the soul went on, uh, how did the, the, the uh, elements within the soul fedor into some other level of existence? Do you get to go and visit the forms before coming back down? Are you immediately sent off into another body? You know, how does all of that work? And of course, for some of the Platonists, even the, the question of whether you can come back as, a, as, an, as an animal or you know, a bug or something like that. I admit as an academic dean, as having gotten through quite a few faculty meetings speculating on that question in relationship to some of my colleagues, but I digress. <laughs> so, so think about this now. Christians come along with, and they begin to absorb this transcendental understanding, right? And that longing for the good. And, and of course they have the philonic Logos theology that has come in, right, at the very beginning of the tradition, you know, and I prologue, and they begin to reflect on this. Now, you can see this exceptionally clearly, and I, I imagine most of our listeners uh, today have read the Confessions. You can see very clearly Augustine articulating the Christian argument that, yes, the Platonists are so right on transcendence. That whole package of transcendental monotheism, yes, they have that right, book seven, right? But what they're wrong on is their belief that their souls can be saved through philosophy. Porphyry, the student of Plotinus, says that. He says, 
He says, the philosopher is his own savior. And Plotinus over and over again says, just pull yourself up, pull yourself together. You can do it. You have the power within you. Augustine and the Christians very clearly agree with that transcendental understanding, but disagree on the way to salvation. You need the power of divine assistance immediately through Christ. That's the articulation that is made over and over and over again by the Nicenes, right? So in that sense, I, I always think of them more as, and I, as Alex mentioned earlier with different terminology, um, I, I see these early Christians as sort of Christian transcendentalists. They've absorbed the larger understanding of reality coming from Platonism, but they're rejecting some very fundamental components of it, especially the soteriology. Now, I have to add a caveat. By the time we get to very late antiquity, the pagans, as you know, uh, pagan Platonists begin to kind of build a rival religion to Christianity, and these are followers coming out of Plotinus down through Iamblichus, like Julian, the apostate emperor, um, and they're into uh, a new form of pagan kind of sacramental magic called theurgy, and they agreed at late in antiquity that maybe you need to access some kind of um, quasi-sacramental tradition, theurgical tradition, in order that souls can be lifted by the power of the gods to whom they're, they're related. Um, so in that sense, they're kind of, in a sense, shifting some elements from the pure philosophical mode of salvation to something that begins to resemble the Christians, which is an kind of mute witness to the power of the Christian claim that human beings do not have that power within themselves. Right. That's the argument in the central books of the Confessions. It's a really fascinating one in uh, in that respect. I want to come back around later, um, but you may have some other questions. So the role of scripture in all this, but we'll you know you may have some other things you want to talk about. Uh, if you'd like to go there now, we can we can go there now because my question was going to be about the how Muslims and Jews um, their their reception of of Platonism was different from the Christian. So. That's probably going to relate since we're getting into scripture now. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would love for you to go go there. That would be great. Yeah, I'll do this. I'll do this briefly because I know Alex may have some other things he wants to add on this. But this is the other fascinating uh, piece of this. Um, as we know, Origen is one of the great scriptural scholars of antiquity, and you know certainly Augustine was no slouch in that regard. It's almost almost entirely his corpus uh, after he uh, is ordained. Um, it becomes scriptural commentary and works related in one way or the other, like even like De Trinitate to scripture. One of the things we have to grasp then is that the Christians believed that this new transcendental understanding of reality was meant to be the hermeneutical key to the reading of scripture. And it opened it, in a, in, to, to, as Augustine says, over and over again, to layer upon layer of interpretation. It's so extraordinarily rich if we can move beyond the literal, the physical, and the material representations, which were necessary at an earlier age. But now we can see that there's so much more in the scriptures. So, this, so the reading of the scriptures becomes a central component of that sacramental understanding, right? Because the power that spoke through in earlier times is also the power, the transcendental power that has come down in the incarnation, right? Opening 
very clearly that aperture for salvation to a higher world and it's the scriptures that allow us to get hold of that and then deepen our understanding of the divine. So all of these uh, great Christian Platonists then are interested in changing the type of life that I articulated earlier, the philosophical life, and, and, and making not just dialectic and discussion, which most certainly the Nicene spent plenty of time doing and arguing you know, about components, this, that, and everything, but the actual reading, contemplative reading of scripture to draw the soul through the grace available there to that higher communion that is available through the incarnation. So that's that's something that we also have to really grab hold of because that's what drives the whole Christian uh, monastic tradition all the way down, right, to the Reformation, right? That was, that was what they were doing, what Augustine was doing, what those early teachers were doing. And as we know, that became a very, very popular lay spirituality, right? The books of the hours, the reading of the hours, the meditation on scripture, the Lectio Divina, all of that is part of this inner meditative course towards finding the divine that is open to us through the incarnation. Do you have any thoughts, Dr. Hampton? Um, I think to, uh, just to take the the story further, um, I think that, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've spoken a lot about the early church and a little bit about the medieval period, but also, um, you know, as someone who's a specialist more in the modern period, um, the tradition of Christian Platonism and the power of that um, sense of, um, of the transcendent uh, is something that's turned to um, a number of times in the modern period to kind of reinvent or reinvigorate um, uh, Christianity. So, um, and, and to kind of reconnect um, as well to, um, to both creation uh, and also to the, to the, to the greater tradition. So I'm, I'm thinking <clears throat> uh, in, in the early modern period, um, the sense of um, an increasing um, uh, separation um, from the world around oneself is is expressed by someone like the the English pastor Thomas Traherne. Uh, he's a um, a metaphysical poet, and um, what's interesting is he he's just about um, contemporary with with Francis Bacon, and and they both are are concerned with recovering a kind of um, uh, you know uh, they're both concerned with soteriology. They're both concerned with with how we um, we overcome the the penalty of Adam and and for Bacon, of course, this is something uh, he expresses in Utopia the the possibility of uh, of um, that that's increasingly opened up through through science of reshaping creation to recreate um, uh, uh, Eden. Um, in sort of in in a physical in a physical form, um, but then we turn to Traherne, who's drawing on the on the Platonic tradition, and what Traherne increasingly sees at this point in time is a kind of disconnect from the kind of um, uh, natural revelation of the divine, and a kind of increasing um, imposition, a sort of, sort of subject centered imposition of of human desire and creation, uh, desire um, upon creation to sort of uh, turn it into um, something which has a kind of, which expresses a kind of selfish end. And he talks a lot about um, property and um, uh, enclosure and um, uh, a lot of the changes that were happening um, economically at that point in time. And for Traherne, 
it was about um, recovering a kind of um, sense, uh, a kind of almost a sensus divinitas, uh, in, uh, divinitatis in a way, of, um, of seeing the divine uh, in creation. So he talks about, in a way that's in some ways curiously reminiscent of, um, of Emerson, of seeing beyond the kind of increasing division of the landscape that surrounds him as a, as a countryside pastor, as, um, as, um, as uh, agriculture is increasingly um, uh, mechanized, seeing beyond these divisions to kind of a, a common wealth. And for him, recovering these eyes of, of felicity, this kind of internal psychological, um, in, the, in the original sense of that as a kind of care for the soul, um, for him, that's the way back to Eden. That's the way of overcoming the kind of the kind of penalty of Adam. It's something that happens for him um, through um, through both through both worship and contemplation, but also it's, it results in a kind of um, epistemological shift. Whereas he 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 would see someone like uh, Bacon kind of deepening the penalty of sin, and so I think that that kind of capacity of um, of uh, Christian Platonism at different points in time to critique uh, uh, the the increasingly what we might call the increasingly imminent frame is 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 something that um, this book also also picks up on. And that was one of the things we we wanted to do because often the, the story of of, of uh, Christianity and Platonism is something that's told in relation to um, the early and the medieval church. But here um, we've told the story as much as we can up to uh, the modern period. And uh, I'm hoping that also is one of the, the kind of contributions uh, of this book. Yeah. And it does seem to be that there is a renewed interest, particularly, I guess, in the metaphysics of participation. Um, I know like the, the one that I'm aware of is Hans Boersma. Um, I'm not like, an expert in this area by any means. So I know you guys know others, but it does seem curious that there is a increase, an increased renewal or I guess renewed interest in it. Do you, why might that be in your opinion that there is like kind of a return to certain aspects of Platonism to some degree? Yeah. I, I think that um, increasingly the kind of dangers of, of, of living in a kind of flat ontology, a kind of um, realm of pure imminence, are manifest to us. They're manifest to us. Um, you know, we've known for ages about anthropogenic destruction to the environment, but now it's sort of coming back to get us in a way that is um, existentially threatening, whether it's, you know, kind of wildfires or um, drought or pandemic. I mean, all of these have a kind of, um, uh, they're, they're, they're ecological catastrophes. And you know, our, our, the way we relate to the environment is a direct result of our, our metaphysics. Um, and uh, one of the things, um, I, I think that the, the reason we're interested in, in recovering participation is we're interested in, in recovering a kind of um, way of understanding the world around us, which is not purely based on uh, anthropocentric um, constructions of reality. One of the things that Platonism does that's or Christian Platonism does that's quite interesting, and we <clears throat> reference this a little bit with the divine ideas, is that um, it creates a kind of um, sovereignty of um, of um, uh, ideas. It protects the sovereignty of things like the beautiful and the good 
uh, and uh, the just and the true and takes them out of human subjectivity and um, places them inherently in nature itself. Um, One of the things I often say to students in my religion and nature classes, um, how do we stop constructing the world simply according to our own needs and wants? What would be the, what would have to happen uh, to see nature as something that has a kind of intrinsic value unto itself that we need to respond to as opposed to simply shaping it to what we will in the pursuit of our own, our own happiness. And um, part of that is, is recovering this notion of, of divine ideas of participation uh, that each individual thing is what it is by virtue of its um, participation in that divine idea. And um, we can look at the practicality of that with a, a very simple example. We might, look at a, a pine forest, for example, and, and think, well, you know, there's, there's countless numbers of, 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 um, of, of pine trees here. And so it doesn't matter if we go and cut down, you know, 50 or 60% of them, there's another forest on the other side of the mountain. But if we, if we think about it from the perspective of participation, each one of those individual um, <clears throat> trees or animals or people are, are participating in the divine idea and they're unfolding that divine idea. It has its, uh, each individual object therefore has its own, um, has its own uniqueness um, and it has its own um, intrinsic value. And we need to respond to that in a far more um, uh, dialogical manner even than, um, than simply um, one that's uh, an imposition of, of human wants. And so, um, you know, just to go back to that environmental issue, I mean, we've known for the best part of 200 years at least that we're, we're making a mess of the planet. Uh, we have the technological and the scientific means to stop what's going on. The issue isn't science and technology. The issue is the cultural framework in which those are deployed. And, and it's the, I think part of it is the, is the problem of this purely imminent ontology. Um, and to, so to, to, um, to, to recognize the intrinsic uh, value in things requires a kind of uh, fundamental questioning of the imminent frame. And I think that's what, um, that's what we see in this, in this renewed interest in, um, in participation. Um, you know, you talked about uh, Borsma's book and also Andrew Davis's, Davison's book, um, uh, Participation in God. There's been a few others. And I think all of these, um, are interested in recovering this much much deeper and richer view of of um, of, of the world around us. And um, it, what's what's exciting about this is it's you know it's taking it beyond uh, ressourcement and Lubac, and it's taking it beyond um, radical orthodoxy and the way that's sort of been done in the Anglican tradition, and it's broadening it out to a much bigger constituency. And I think that's what's what's so exciting about this because it it um, it, it offers a, a robust critique to the to the logic of imminence um, uh, that has a that has a you know two three thousand year history behind it uh, and a tremendous amount of resources that we can we can call upon. What are real significant existential issues now, Doctor Kenny? Do you have anything you wanted to add to that? Sure, I might uh, pick up on on those uh, excellent points from Alex from a slightly different perspective. Um, as I articulated it earlier, um, 
in antiquity, Platonism was really the the very powerful uh, way of understanding reality, transcendentalist understanding of reality, uh, that uh, conjoined with a particular approach to one's actual life, offered the opportunity, it claimed, um, to come into immediate contact with a deeper divine level of reality. And as I said earlier, the Christians picked up on that in their own way. Therefore, ancient Platonism, Platonism as it began, was an exceptionally forceful anti-materialist philosophy. It was, it was a philosophy that pushed back against relativism, materialism, and those are exactly the issues, I think, that are bringing it to the fore again in the contemporary world. Right? So there's a kind of arid objectivism that goes with scientific naturalism or materialism today. Uh, and, and with it, that specious idea that, you know, Charles Taylor talks about of the view from nowhere, right? The objectivist view from nowhere. Um, the Platonist tradition totally rejects that and says, uh, perhaps that has a place at an intermediate level of knowledge, scientia, to use Augustine's uh, term, deanoyer, as the, as the Greeks use it, and that's fine. But the whole point of Platonism is to go deeper into a level, to the intelligible level through nous, or what um, Augustine calls sapientia, contemplatio, right, to something deeper. And the tradition, pagan and Christian, claims that by the fundamental changing of the self, However, mean, whatever the means are, sacramental, scriptural, however you understand it, there's a way to do that so that you can then understand that very sacramental understanding of reality and of the earth that Alex just articulated. Right? So it's the pushback, I think, uh, behind that uh, in, in our culture against all of this um, sort of empty scientific ways of thinking about the world. Um, and then with it comes uh, an understanding within certainly the Christian Platonic tradition that the source of evil is that egotistical libido dominandi, to use the Augustinian uh, phrase, that desire to dominate, which collectively in society generates the problems that Alex was articulating. So in some sense, Platonism, because of the very force of it as the founding tradition, of, of a transcendental understanding of reality, I think is of interest again, for precisely the reasons that drew early Christians to it um, in the first place. And I would add, by the way, this is something also that occurred in, in the Renaissance, right? The Renaissance was pushing back against so much of what had happened in the rise of nominalism and all of the issues that came with that. And, and Platonism was the tradition that articulated a whole glorious artistic understanding of reality rooted again in a higher frame of existence, the divine. Mm -hmm. well, we, we've covered quite a bit of ground here from, you know, defining Platonism to the historical development and now into, you know, some implications for um, retrieving Christian Platonism today on things like ethics and environmental ethics and how we understand beauty. So I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but I do want to give um, both of you gentlemen a chance to 
um, if you'd like to give us any recommended resources outside of your book, obviously we want to recommend um, the the book that both of you have edited, um, Christian Platonism, a history, and that's from Cambridge Universe, University Press. Um, but also any other helpful resources that you think our listeners um, might be interested interested in if they want to dig a little deeper on this. And then um, if you have any upcoming work uh, on this topic that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah, well, I would just say, um, I think uh, in terms of um, participation, we've just had this excellent uh, book by my um, uh, friend, uh, Andrew Davison um, at, uh, at Cambridge, uh, Participation in God, uh, which I think is uh, quite an excellent um, uh, resource for uh, getting into this um, tradition. I think, um, uh, you know, Craig Carter's work on the, on the great tradition um, for your um, uh uh, for the broader audience, I think is is uh, is is excellent, um, and uh, I also think, um, of course, there's no there's no substitute for going ad fontes though uh, with some of this material um, as well. Um, and then um, I would just say I'm I'm hoping to have finished um, quite soon, which is uh, gives away why I'm I'm focused on nature, a, a book I'm 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 working on completing um, called Participation in Nature. Uh, which uh, takes up um, uh, a range of, of uh, Christian thinkers from uh, early um, to uh, contemporary, uh, thinking about how um, how metaphysics allows us uh, to uh, relate to the world around us and um, and uh, perhaps um, developing a kind of uh, metaphysical um, uh, uh, ecology, which I think is something that will. Um, that will speak to um, a broad audience and um, bring a much needed um, uh, a much needed faith perspective um, to a lot of the um, contemporary debates about um, about the environment. Um, uh, and I'm hoping that that will that will help that that conversation, uh, which is already uh, ongoing. Well, I uh, thank you for that um, that that question, Brandon. Uh, I would. Uh, Strongly recommend for any of um, uh, our, of our listeners here today. Uh, if you're interested in the uh, development of early Christian philosophy, there's a a, a marvelous uh, new set of essays, uh, history uh, that Mark Edwards uh, from Oxford has uh, has done uh, with Rutledge. Um, I think it's called a Handbook of Early Christian Philosophy. Um, I did the Augustine chapter, but I can't remember the exact title here at the moment. Um, but it's just terrific because for so long, uh, Christian philosophy was you know, it was the philosophy that, that that you know couldn't speak its name. You know, I mean, people would be saying, "Oh, you, Christian philosophy, you can't use that term. It's you know, it's outrageous." Blah blah blah, right? And and so it's wonderful that someone has um, has actually gone back to the ancient period and pulled together all of the wonderful Christian philosophy that was done at the earliest stages. Um, and so I think it's would be very very helpful, particularly for um, traditions that work very closely with the New Testament, to be able to access the early Christian forms of philosophical. Um, reflection and see how integral to early Christian thought philosophy uh, was and how uh, quickly uh, philosophy became, as it were, Christianized uh, in, in, as a result. And that's the fascinating story 
um, in, in so many ways. Um, so now my self-advertisement, uh, I, I do have a recent, I've written a bunch of books on Augustine, right? Besides my book on paganism. Um, and, and I have one uh, that's come out. It's meant to be a crossover book, uh, that, you know, that's accessible uh, to not just scholars, but to, uh, you know, learned people who are interested in these things. From Bloomsbury has a new series called Reading Augustine. I don't know whether you've come across this. And so I have a book in there called On God, the Soul, Evil, and the Rise of Christianity, which articulates some of the things that I've been saying here in a, in a short format. It's I think it's 175 pages um, and intended, you know, for general for general audiences. So that might interest, again, people who are intrigued by um, some of the issues that we've been considering today with respect to ancient Christianity. Awesome. Well, this has been really great. I really appreciate you both taking the time to talk with us about this. This is fun. Um, this some great resources as well to, to check out. So for everybody who's been listening, I encourage you to check out the resources that have been mentioned, as well as make sure to, to either, if, if you can't get a copy of the book itself, I know a lot of our listeners, uh, have their students and their libraries have gigantic book budgets to get books. Go tell your library to buy this book and to get it in your library so that others can have a chance to have it as a resource as well. So I, I commend it to you. I think it's really, really fascinating history. And a lot of people are, I think, at least in my segment of the universe, are interested more and more in these types of things. So this has been a lot of fun. So thank you both. For, I mean, really, thank you a lot for this. This has been great. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughts. And um, everybody's been listening. Uh, again, check it out. And thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>